This is A Giant Leap on Monocle 24 with me, Andrew Muller. This is the last of a five-part series of programmes from the Starmus Science and Art Festival in Zurich, produced in collaboration with Kaspersky. Today, we talk to the musician, producer and boffin, Brian Eno. Just as koala bears eat eucalyptus leaves, human beings eat knowledge. That, that's what we live on. That's our special skill. No other creatures can do that. And we'll hear from the astronomer Jill Tata about her lifelong quest to get extraterrestrial life to return our calls. Either they're going to come and land on the lawn of the White House, and that's not the program that we're, ex- we're working on, or we're going to find some evidence of their technology, perhaps some information content perhaps just a cosmic dial tone. That's all to come on A Giant Leap on Monocle 24 in association with Kaspersky. You're listening to A Giant Leap with me, Andrew Muller, at the Starmus Festival in Zurich for Monocle 24 in association with Kaspersky. I'm joined now by Brian Eno, who, in addition to many other accolades, as of this Starmus Festival, holds the Stephen Hawking Medal for Science Communication. And you also now have an asteroid named after you. I'm I'm not sure what the formal protocol of congratulations for that is, but congratulations on having an asteroid (laughs) named after you, I guess. Do, do, Do you plan to visit? No, I plan to mine it. (laughs) (laughs) Coming to this Starmus Festival, what have you been enjoying most about this one, apart from the whole asteroid named after you thing? Well, I have a friend here, somebody I've known for many, many years, Rusty Schweikert, who was an astronaut on Apollo 9. And we went to a film last night, a fabulous film, Apollo 11. We were at that as well. It's it's extraordinary. Oh, it's extraordinary. And I was talking to... um, Rusty afterwards, and he said, that's the best film about this I've ever seen. He said, but there was one, mi- one thing wrong. He said, the ascent engines didn't make any noise. And he said, we were amazed in the craft at that point because we could see the engine throwing out all this fire. But inside the craft, only three feet away from the engine, we couldn't hear a thing. And he said, I never understood that. And when I saw the film, I realized they had got that part wrong. So I, I went to ask Buzz. I said to Buzz, do you remember the ascent engines making any noise? And Buzz said, you know what, I never thought about that. They didn't, did they? So it's quite interesting talking to people at that level of granular detail about those experiences. It, it, it's been the, well, one of the fun parts about this for us as well, actually getting to talk to these people who you, you, you learned about at school and have read about in history books. But certainly my own experience has been that there does sort of seem to be such a, a fundamental barrier between them and everybody else that they, there's this very select group of people who've experienced this extraordinary thing, which... Do, do, do you get the sense that it's actually possible to completely communicate that to people who haven't experienced it? Those particular people, the, the people who actually stepped on, went into the craft and stepped onto the moon, have been singled out rather artificially from the other 400,000 people who worked on this project. Mm. One thing that that film made very clear to me last night was the intensity of the whole thing at the level of all of the hundreds and hundreds of people sitting in Cape Canaveral watching screens, basically, and monitoring the progress of the flight. And I think all of the astronauts feel a little bit uncomfortable about the fact that they've been singled out and turned into heroes and everybody else has just turned into the sort of support team. Mm. I've had this experience myself of 
working on things and feeling that I had been over-applauded for them. It's an uncomfortable feeling because you constantly feel you have to apologize to the other people <laughs> saying, I realize how important you were as well. So I'm sure they must be sick to the back teeth in some ways of being told again and again, you are the most extraordinary humans who've ever lived. That They know who they are. They're mostly test pilots who were brave, actually. <laughs> You know, the courageous men. Extraordinarily and almost unfathomably so, I think. I did want to ask about at least one of your own responses to the Apollo program. This was, of course, the the 1983 album uh, Apollo Atmospheres and Soundtracks that you created for the documentary For All Mankind, and that is being re-released, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, imminently around the, the 50th anniversary. That's quite a way back now as well. Do you get the sense that the the cultural importance of the Apollo missions is changing as they're receding into the memory, that they were the future once, or at least an an aspiration of what the future might be like, and now it just sort of seems like this amazing, extraordinary thing we did half a century ago and then kind of stopped doing, at least in terms of sending people to other worlds? You know, I have um, three daughters, the two younger ones. When they were about eight or so, which was in the 1990s, I started talking to them about Concord, and they didn't believe, they thought it was just one of my stories, because I used to make up (laughs) a lot of stories, they didn't believe that there had ever been a plane that could cross the ocean that quickly. So I said, no, there really was. And I said, and I'll tell you something else. In 1969, when I was 21, people landed on the moon. And they absolutely could not believe me. <laughs> they, they thought this is just a story Dad's made up, like all the other silly stories I made up. And I suddenly realized for a whole generation of people, they didn't understand that there had been another time in history where people felt had quite different ambitions, actually. So I then got interested in this idea of, you know, that period from 1945 to 1975 is called by economists, it's called the the golden age of capitalism. Mm. And I thought, what do people actually think was golden about that time? And what they think was golden was there was social mobility, people were championing rights of women and workers' rights, you know, all, all the sorts of things that actually we associate with socialism. So I thought, why is it called the golden age of capitalism? <laughs> it's the golden age of socialism. Because and, and, and the, the Apollo program, an absolutely par excellence illustration of, of exactly. a, a state enterprise. Exactly. So, so many of the achievements that became modern technology, that became the iPad, the iPod, the internet and so on, come directly out of that experience of state-directed research. Now, state-directed research, according to libertarians and venture capitalists, is a total no-no. You know, the state doesn't know how to direct research. But actually, it does. It does pretty well. well I, w- I want to pursue that in the context of something you said recently, I think, when the, the Stephen Hawking Medal was announced. And you, you described science as a special kind of knowledge, not a go- not gossip, not a rumour, not a tweet, and it's essential for our civilization that we keep respecting that. And obviously, we now live in a world at which you can see a certain abandonment of reason, even in the most advanced democracies. I mean, there's any number of examples, but the, the increasing popularity of anti 
anti-vaxxer movements, for example. Is it important, do you think, that maybe we have somewhere on the planet something like the Apollo program on the go, some extraordinarily ambitious thing which only works because of science and reason and logic? Yes, I I think it's absolutely right. I think that just as um, koala bears eat eucalyptus leaves, human beings eat knowledge. That's what we live on. That's our special skill. We know how to use knowledge, how to generate and use knowledge. No other creatures can do that. And we don't have many other advantages over any other creatures. That's what we can do. And, And I think we have to remember that, that our relationship to reality, our, our ability to dissect and understand and manipulate reality is our strength. If we lose that relationship to reality, if we lose it in a welter of gossip and rumor and ideological bollocks, we have lost our strongest weapon, actually, our strongest tool, I should say. It was interesting when I said that at the press conference, because there was quite a kind of rumbling of discontent among the astronauts because it turns out that two of them are climate change deniers, (laughs) two of them are fundamentalist Christians who are creationists effectively. Mm. And I thought this is very weird that we artists are arguing for science and they are arguing for faith essentially. Have you tried having that conversation with any of them? I I, I was aware of this, but haven't been quite sure how to bring it up. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not quite sure how to bring it up either. We've been kind of politely avoiding talking about it, I think. But, you know, you you have to remember, I, I have huge respect for those guys, but you have to remember they're military test pilots and they're Texans. (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's a very particular subset of the population. I don't want to make that sound offensive. I really think that they did something incredibly courageous and monumental, but it doesn't mean that we necessarily agree about how things work and what we might believe. Brian Eno, thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to A Giant Leap with me, Andrew Muller. I'm joined now by the astronomer Jill Tarter. Uh, Jill, it occurs to me in introducing you as such that astronomer, that covers an extremely wide field. So maybe we should start by narrowing that down a little bit. What, what are you working on now? Well, I'm officially retired from the SETI Institute, which I helped co-found in uh, 1984. So I'm still kind of the chief cheerleader for all things SETI, (laughs) SETI being the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So working to get people to understand what we do, working to bring money in the the door, um, working to make the search better and, and maybe eventually have success with this. Over the years that you worked in that field of SETI, did your ideas about what contact of any sort might look like evolve? Since we are still using primarily uh, remote sensing with optical and radio telescopes, that pretty much defines what contact would be like. Either they're going to come and land on the lawn of the White House, and that's not <laughs> the program that we're, ex- we're working on, or we're going to find some evidence of their technology, perhaps some information content, perhaps just a cosmic dial tone that says, yeah, there's life out there, then that success tells us something really profound, even if there's no information content that's 
immediately discernible. And the information that gives us is that it's possible to become an old technology because we will not have success in this kind of endeavor unless technologies endure, last for a long time, long on cosmic, not human scales. Since we live in this galaxy that's 10 billion years old, and if you're going to have two technological uh, civilizations overlap not only in space, so that we're close, but in time, in the 10 billion year history of the galaxy, the longevity is an enormously important thing. If technologies um, spring up and then on short time scales turn off or do themselves in or something else, then we'll not succeed. But success means that we can have a long future. Somebody else made it through, we can too. In that time you spent looking for the, the cosmic dial tone, as you put it, how hard did you have to work to guard against confirmation bias, sort of perceiving any kind of weird aberration as that moment of, this is it, this is the thing I've been looking for? The easiest person to fool, of course, is yourself. <laughs> and on those rare occasions where we have thought, perhaps, that we had detected what we've been looking for, the adrenaline, the excitement is so enormous um, but you actually play a game, and you saw it in the movie Contact, you know. Make me a liar, right? So we pre-think a list of things that we're going to do to verify uh, that what we've, what we've found is what we think it is, and then we have a next step, which is to get an independent confirmation to help us avoid hoaxes that are deliberate, and then we go from there. But uh, I can tell you that when you are so excited and the adrenaline is so enormous, you do dumb things. You make mistakes. And so after each episode, we write a new list. <laughs> <laughs> okay, dummy, do this, right? And don't misinterpret it. So we've had a couple of um, false positives, and we get to, to uh, answer questions then that we often get from the media of, oh, well, the government's just going to come in and shut you down. They won't be able, you know, you won't be able to tell the world as we intend to. And you can see as we go through the process of these false positives that that's just not going to be possible. Did you ever have any conversations, though, with governments, and this is now just occurring to me what a public relations can of worms this would be, as to who should explain to humanity at large that, guess what, and how you would go about explaining that? Well... We started life as a NASA project, right? And so we had to write a post-detection protocol. And as part of the NASA project, we even had to specify which administrator, which assistant administrator at the agency would inform the uh, funding committees who got to tell the executive branch and that sort of thing. And then it would lay out all of the kinds of steps you do before making a public announcement, such as we saw for um, the detection of gravitational waves. Now that we're no longer a federal project, we still have a protocol. It just doesn't talk about who gets to inform the executive and the congressional committees. So we try and think it through. Um, it's probably not going to play out the way we'd like it, in the sense that we're probably not going to manage to keep the information to ourselves long enough to execute all these plans. But if we detect something, 
it's not the property of the SETI Institute in California or the United States. I mean, it's, that information's the property of humankind, and we need to share it. That's our fundamental philosophy. As a final thought then, if we think of ourselves as earthlings, and we earthlings, or at least people have on our behalf, made various attempts at outreach to who or whatever may be out there, You've been quite critical of a few of those things, especially of the perhaps slightly rose-tinted view of humanity that was taken into the cosmos aboard Voyager 1, for example. If we are going to send more things into the stars and attempt to introduce ourselves to who or whatever is out there, how honest do you think we should be about ourselves? Oh, I think we should be honest. And there have been a couple of projects that I've been associated with where we've had exactly these debates, right? What we've been trying to do is figure out the platforms and mechanisms for crowdsourcing this, whatever we say about ourselves, and realizing that the most important aspect of that whatever we put together is not a message to someone else, it's a message to ourselves. Jill Tata, thank you for joining us on A Giant Leap. That's it for this episode of A Giant Leap, produced by Monocle24 in collaboration with Kaspersky at the Starmus Festival in Zurich. And that's also it for this series. Remember to go back and listen to the other episodes if you haven't already. They include conversations with Apollo 16's Charlie Duke, NASA astronaut Nicole Stott, Kaspersky CEO Eugene Kaspersky, and Brian May out of Queen, among others. To find out more about Kaspersky's mission of building a safer world, head to to Kaspersky.com. A Giant Leap is produced and edited by Bill Lutie and presented by me, Andrew Muller. Thanks very much for listening all this week. Goodbye. Goodbye.